so Peter, the, the, the place, if you'll indulge me, that I want to come in to, to just talk to you about some philosophy and sort of getting some ideas with you is, um, is, is, is somewhere so simple and so kind of, kind of, because that's kind of where I always start. And, and that's um, what I wanted to do was talk with some people I find really interesting, such as yourself and, and kind of start a conversation from that place. Yeah, and that place is simply not to do with our work. You know, I've written books, you've written books, you're a you know, professional philosopher, blah, blah, blah. So there's lots of ideas waiting there. But fundamentally, I find myself a human being in the middle of this enormous mystery, having this experience on a, the way to dying, trying to make sense of it and, and to live it as fully as I can. Mm. And so the question I want to start with is, what is this, do you think? <laughs> what, you know, or, or provisionally, I'm, I'm not I'm at all imagining that you're foolish enough to think you've got, this is it. But just as a way, you know, what is this we're in? this thing which is happening to us? Well, I, number one, I don't know. Uh, number two, you know, I'm with, with uh, Plato, you know, philosophy begins in wonder and it, it's a wonderful thing. And when you really realize how incredible it is, um, yeah, it sort of smacks you in the face, doesn't it? I, I don't, I can say negatively, I can give you an apathetic way, as it were. I, I don't are. think being in a simulation, as is, as is becoming popular today, um, I don't think, um, I don't think we're anywhere close to understanding where we are. I mean, all the great physicists and philosophers, physicists at least, you know, admitted this. Um, I don't know. What is this? Um, I mean, my, my basic cosmology, as you probably know, is uh, a panpsychism. So matter and mind are both uh, are part of a monism. So they're essentially the same thing. Um, um, whether there is an overall purpose to this, um, I do not know. I know that you're sympathetic to that view. Bergson was as well. Um, I don't, I'm, I'm generally skeptical about a theological interpretation. Uh, that's probably my Nietzschean side coming out. Well, the funny, you know, the funny thing about my worldview generally is um, this, that I've sort of combined Nietzsche and Whitehead. Alfred North Whitehead, who was a process thinker, you know, came up with the philosophy of organism, like everything's an organism, not only cells, but molecules, atoms, and so, so on. Um, and he believes in a sort of God, not, not in the traditional sense, but there is an overall uh, sentience, or part of God is that sentient. And, um, and so it's kind of, I'm, I'm in a conflict, really, with the sort of Nietzschean atheism, hardcore atheism, and then the Whiteheadian process theology at the same time. Wow. Uh, the, more, the more I read about it, the less I realize I, I can't really take sides anymore. Um, I'm just sort of, yeah, really, I suppose, ultimately like a deep skeptic, but even of materialism and uh, science, and, as well as, um, you know, religious thought to a certain extent. But at the same time, I'm somewhere in the middle. I don't know, it's hard to judge yourself, isn't it? I, I think the ultimate answer to your question is I don't, I've got no clue. <laughs> well, I, I think that is a, the that is probably the deepest answer, but a great a great place to start off. I'm a great I, I love to root everything I do in what you've just said into mystery because it feels like we have a conversation based on I haven't got a clue. Well, not who knows, but here's my best guess. This is what I'm working on. This is what then it's a place. It's a very different place to yeah. have a conversation from. Yeah, and um, I'm, you know, Whitehead was a speculative metaphysician, meaning that you know he put forward a theory, and um, and that sort of was 
the end game was to make sense of most phenomena, not yeah. only in science, but also in mind. I think of this deep mystery of existence, I add another thing from Bergson, actually. Um, I don't really like the question, why does something exist rather than nothing? Um, Bergson's got this great thing in creative evolution about how the idea of nothing really actually simply means replacement. Uh, like if I say there's nothing in the room, I mean, nothing of interest in the room. There's still space and time and dust and whatnot, and light or darkness. Um, if I say there's nothing on TV, it means nothing of interest. So when, when you use the word nothing, what it really means is uh, nothing of interest to me. And thus, the idea of um, total nothingness, like total replacement of everything that exists, is a sort of oxymoron, contradiction in terms. Because I... if it means replacement, then it can't be. If you're taking everything, then you can't replace it with anything. So... I mean, this is Bergson against Heidegger, you know, Heidegger said this was great. Heidegger's famous thing about the why something and not nothing, which I kind of like, because it's just so, so... I mean, it's, it's, a great, it's a great for classes and whatever to give, give to people to think about it and come up with solutions. But ultimately, I, th I think I'm a Bergson, like, but that then means that's got then repercussions for like the Big Bang Theory and so on, you know, creatio ex nihilo, creation out of nothing. And is, is it, is it, are you saying, or is he saying... Um, the thought that occurs to me about the about the concept of nothing is that by definite does that by definition it doesn't exist. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's along those lines. I mean, for those lines. Yeah. the other one I love just because you brought it up with, which I believe is also um, uh, Heidegger, is uh, the other f question I always associate with him was why this and not that, which. I really like as a question because it's so like you know what I mean. It's like not only are we experiencing it, mm. something, but yes. we're experiencing this. Yes, and uh, I'm not. That, that's actually an incredibly deep question, like as opposed to the first one. I think. Yeah. Big um, one, Kim, one of my favourite philosophers of mind, even though I don't agree with his final conclusion, um, said. He, I mean, he he's, he wrote this book in two thousand six called Physicalism or something, uh, or something similar. What was this? Physicalism or something similar or something like that. Um, no. Yeah, here it is. Physicalism or something near enough. Uh, <laughs> if you haven't read it, it's, I, I really recommend it. He's great. Okay, I don't know. Very analytic, but um, he's just very thorough. He's very clear. And um, although he's sort of pushing physicalism, what he does is inadvertently points out all the problems with it. Oh, right. <laughs> so, and if you really you actually think, actually, no, I, I don't really agree with physical even though he does, except he says one thing relating to your point, which is that why, you know, the word qualia, and some people don't like yeah. that word, but let's use the word experience then, talking yeah. about redness, uh, emotion, you know, anger, whatever. Um, let's take colours. Why do we have these particular qualia rather than others? You know, there's, there's no reason. I mean, even if you knew the perfect neural correlates of red, you know, um, why should it be red and not green or, or some colour we can't even imagine? This, he says, and I agree, is complete mystery. I mean, why these qualia and not others? It seems completely arbitrary. Yeah. You get on the world seeing colour other than the red for red things as long as it's not the same as another colour. Um, and same with uh, feelings and uh, uh, audio and everything. And that is a deep mystery. Um, yeah. is, it, is it completely random? Is it completely arbitrary? Or is there some reason for it? That's one of the deep mysteries. So I want to I want to dig into that because I want to get into the idea of um, panpsychism and your work on that. But before you do, because otherwise I'm going to forget it, and I really want to. I, I really, I think I mentioned to you when we emailed. I, I keep, through over the years, I keep on coming across Whitehead, 
every time I do, I think, wow, I really like this guy. Just as a human being, I resonate with him. It feels like he's kindred. There's something he's doing. And especially with my latest work, I just I keep coming across it thinking, yeah, that's he's, he's like and and yet whenever I read him, <laughs> I stop because I just I just I just what the hell? Yeah. And so what what when you when you talk about his idea of God, what what is his idea of God? <laughs> um well, okay, just one step before that, I should say this, that yes, I agree. Unfortunately, to penetrate Whitehead's um, metaphysics is very difficult because the reason is, though, he, because it's such a cosmological change, shift in, in, in thought, you know, um, he can't use traditional words like yeah. perception. You know, well, he uses it to a certain extent, but he's got like a new, a new temprehension. And of course, if you don't know what that word means immediately, then um, yeah, it becomes, and, and then the one sentence is full of, you know, uh, neologisms. But the thing is, it's like a, learning a language a bit. Once you, once you get your head around it, then, it, then you realize why it's necessary. Also, yeah. another, another thing is uh, most people start by reading his main book, Process and Reality of 1929. That's um, the book, you should never start there. You should read okay. like notes of thought or adventures of ideas. They're more accessible to start with, then you slowly get into it. Also, I've just discovered recently John Cobb's book, uh, What? whitehead word book which is really good it's like a glossary of terms uh -huh. really but it's brilliant uh, great introduction so um people always ask me yeah what what should i start with whitehead so i was i generally say modes of thought for, from whitehead himself and then now i'm going to suggest this cob book whom i met in california recently for the first time he's in his 90s amazing anyway uh question was um <laughs> yeah, hey, god up. yeah you so, mentioned it so uh, i wanted yeah, to pick yeah. up on it just because okay um <clears throat> you, you felt caught between that and Nietzsche, so I want to know I know Nietzsche I kinda know, but the the other one up one. Yes, yeah, so, okay. So in a way you can see um and Whitehead himself sees himself as a neo-spinozist. So so for Spinoza, God is nature, and that's why it's a kind of pantheism. Okay. Um you can call it pan psycho panentheism. <laughs> What's that mean? Right, there's a word. Um okay. So, um <laughs> let's call it that just because it's a great word. Yeah, right. Um, what, so for Whitehead, every thing which ultimately reduces down to something called actual entities, which are like an electron is a society of actual entities, they are drops of feeling, drops of experience from James. Um, so that's the panpsychism in a way, or it's known as pan experientialism because as you, as I'm, as I know you're aware, the psyche sort of means soul and we don't mean that exactly. So pro, basic form of sentience and everything, um, valence, whatever. Um, and then in humans, it's conscious, it's subconscious in most beings. But um, for Whitehead, um, it doesn't stop with human beings, it continues up as it were, and until the fundamental actual entity is God himself, and that is the universe. And there are two aspects, to, two main aspects to God. Uh, one is known as the primordial nature of God, which is God as uh, non-conscious, but as, as it were, the realm of what he calls eternal objects or platonic, similar to platonic forms, ideas. So this timeless reality, um, which sounds, if you're not aware of the, you know, the sort of uh, literature, it sounds crazy, but, you know, a lot of logicians believe in that realm, like Frege, Gödel, uh, Russell, at least in his earlier work. Uh, Santiana and so on. Um, so there's that, that eternal aspect of him. So that's really just renaming that realm God. Okay, if you're a universal realist, 
not a big thing. The second aspect, though, is called the consequential nature of God. And that is God within experiencing every single um, um, subject, as it were, of experience within the universe, within nature. So, and what he's aiming for, he gives each drop of experience, as it were, each actual entity, a telos, uh, like, a, like an aim, subjective aim, he calls it. Um, so it's teleological. And what God is aiming for is intense experience. So he, the purpose of the universe there, as it were, is to develop you know, somewhat similar to your, to your cosmology, I think. Um, that's why you've been drawn to him, obviously. Um, that the fundamental nature is not actually compassion so much or goodness. It's rather, yeah, intense experiences. So some people have criticized why it's God. Uh, I read a book recently criticizing it, saying this is a very hedonistic God. You know, <laughs> but, but the ultimate point of purpose of nature then is to create beings more and more complex, which can have more and more complex forms of consciousness, sentience, um, so that God himself experiences that. So it's a very strange God. But I'll, I'll, I'll add this qualifier up. Whitehead himself wrote that this is the most speculative part of my thought. And he died that in 1947. And what happened with him subsequently was that the Americans took up this kind of theology and turned it into what it wasn't, what came known as process theology. People like John Cobb, who, who I mentioned. And, um, so Whitehead didn't call it process philosophy himself? No, uh, oh, he called it philosophy of organism. I didn't or, know that. Ah, also organic realism. Yeah. Okay. But the philosophy of organism was his most um, common term. The reason being that he, you know, we often make the distinction between the animate and the inanimate, or life and the lifeless. Um, like, so we say maybe an amoeba cell is alive, but a molecule is not. But he said, really, that's an arbitrary distinction. Um, and, um, and that's why he calls it the philosophy of organism. Everything is organ is an organism for him. And his great line from um, a, a book you'd really like was Science in the Modern World, where he argues against um, scientism, or what do you call it, scientific objectivism, I think. Yeah. In, he's got a line which, go, which goes something like this. Um, um, Biology is the study of the larger organisms, whereas physics is the study of the smaller organisms. And so, so that, you know, the organic inorganic distinction is, is really a conceptual distinction made by man. And it's not, not actual. So is that saying, because, I mean, I mean, everything you said was fascinating. And I really, and, and, and I can absolutely, you know, resonate with lots of it. I just feel like, oh yeah, that's why I keep thinking that mm. this, this, this is, I'm following something which has been laid down before by, by him and others. Um, but um, there is clearly a distinction between living things and non-living things. And we can, it's hard to define it. And, and it's hard to, 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 to when, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm doing some work with, um, um, uh, and some conversations with uh, uh, Bruce Dammer, who's working uh, at the moment with the, the origins of life in a really interesting way, for instance. And like, th that's looking at the origins of something new. And it is, there is a transition. And, and whilst in the middle, it's kind of hard to define, it's like on either side, you can, there's a difference. So it's well, it, not, is it a, really a, a change of kind or a change of degree? That's that's an interesting question. I mean, like yeah, I've been that's what I thought. That's so was, what he's saying is that, the, that look, there's the, or, or is it, is that there's a spectrum here, not uh, although there are, even within spectrums, there's a, there are things where there's like a there's a definite change, isn't there? You know, there's a there's a difference between say 
a form of life which has no eyes and a form that has eyes. Now, there will be a spectrum in between them, but there's a hell of a difference between being able to see and not being able to see, for instance. Do you know what I'm trying to say? Yes, but, okay, take that example, for example. A plant doesn't have eyes and it can't see, we should say. However, but it's picking up light. a leaf can perceive light. Yeah. You know, there's, there's a great book by Chamovitz recently called What a Plant Knows, and it shows, like, new tests have shown that, I think, a, a particular plant, Aridopsis, is that something? its leaf can distinguish 11 types of lights, you know, sunset, blue light stuff, and it reacts accordingly. So in a way, a leaf is an eye. And they're also, you know, tomato plants can smell. And, um, and recently they've discovered certain plants can hear bees. <laughs> so, 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 one of, so one of the things... Like the jump maybe, to an eye, an eye really is just a more complex leaf in that sense. I love that line. That's a great leaf. line. But and I really, uh, it's, a de- it's a degree emergence, a bit like I think. I think now maybe I didn't. I'm not sure if I've interpreted you right here. But when you talk about sentience and that, I use that word umbrella term includes consciousness at the top, yeah, pain, pain, pleasure near the bottom. Um, you know, I believe that's also emerges in degrees rather than shifts in kind. Um, so you know, you've got the basic forms which are non-conscious but nonetheless sentient. And, so you, and you are using it in a very wide sense, the word sentience. Yeah. So and that's why it's known as pan-experientialism, because experience then is, is equivalent to sentience there. So, so, yeah, so, it so makes pan-experientialism, more just for anyone who's, who's listening to this and doesn't know what that means, is, is just saying, look, everything in the universe is experiencing something, not necessarily consciously, but it's like it's some, it's the, what we're experiencing as experience is something which has arisen from something which is absolutely throughout it's yeah, not so there's, there's never a jump between the non-sentient to the sentient like james said you know how, how well like sewell wright the biologist you know because population geneticist he says you know there's be pure magic for that to happen you know william james likewise waddington who came up with epigenetics whiteheadian likewise says that there's good reasons to believe that also makes a more parsimonious cosmology to believe that there's never, never these yeah, sort of inexplicable jumps Although, of course, emergence happens to the, on the degree level and there's, yeah. you know, there's, there are periods in history where you have suddenly, you know, more, more, more species emerge and, um, and so on. However, I still think it's, it's more parsimonious to think that these are degree shifts. So um, I'm however, I wouldn't say that, I just add a qualifier as well. Okay. It's not that everything that exists is conscious, it's everything in actuality. Right? So, because... Um, by, by, by actuality, uh, whitehead means nature, what exists in time and space, although spatial dimensions can change for uh, whitehead. But um, there's also this then um, realm of eternal objects which are not part of actuality but are part of reality. Yeah. They themselves are not conscious. So num- a number, for example, is not conscious. Also, the word thing, every, when, you, when, when one says everything is conscious, it's really careful about what you mean by thing. And that is a massive, massive issue that still hasn't been fully resolved. So, you know, we talk about, it's very easy to define like a living thing as a cell, for example, because it's got a membrane, you know, as Varela did and so on. But, um, but um, like, for example, he wouldn't say, it's not that a rock is yeah. sentient. Because yeah. a rock is not self-systematic, it's not auto, semi-autopoetic, to use the terminology. Yeah. Uh, it's an aggregate of self-systematic units, which in that case are molecules, perhaps crystals there, if it's granite. But, so it's not like a chair sentient or a table. These are, I mean, Bruno made this point 
you know, in the uh, 16th century, that you don't, clothing is, he was a panpsychist of sorts, he said clothing, you know, like a shirt or something like this, it's not sentient per se in itself. Not like there's one unity to the shirt. So by thing, yeah, you have to be very, very careful to define it. And like for Whitehead, the, the ultimate thing, and he's an atomist in this sense, is an actual entity. This, this is the, the final step. But God himself is an actual entity, as I say. And your moments of experience are also actual entities. So, yeah, it's complicated, but it's worth, it's worth getting into. And, and um, you know, I, you apologize. I agree with all of that. That's fantastic. <laughs> I use different language, but I yeah. think essentially I'm really trying to get at the same thing. Um, uh, so it's lovely to hear that. I mean, just, I don't want to get into it now, although I'm, there's so many things I want to ask you. Um, because one of the things that strikes me, the, 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 the question you have about, you know, what makes a thing a thing, I've been wrestling with that for more years than I can remember. Because it is a really hard thing. You know, it's the difference yeah. between a pile of things and things. Yeah. And I think also this whole debate that's going on with AI, people ask me about that. And for me, it's like, well, I think it's not a thing. It's, it's, a, it's a collection of artifacts, it's a collection of things. So, mm. it, you know, it's not like, well, my phone's a little bit conscious. <laughs> if it was bigger, then it would be fully conscious. It's like, it's just not the, to me, it's like, it doesn't look like the sort of thing that can. So the word, so anyway. So Heidegger's think, got a book, What is the Thing, hasn't he? Yeah, it's an old question. Who has, sorry? I think Heidegger wrote a book called What oh, is Oh, did he? Things. I mean, Ian McGillcrest is writing a book called There Are No Things. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> what is nothing? That's through Hegel, right? <laughs> um, so I want to just, because, because you've, you've expressed it so eloquently using that language, I just want to just say why I've ended up using the language I've ended up and getting your reaction to that. So, so I played with, with, with trying to, you know, what I'm, what I, what I looking for primarily is just a way of understanding for myself, which I share with others. That's just what I've done with my life. And so I've played with uh, the idea of pan experientialism, panpsychism, just as a phrase. I know they're kind of all trying to point to the same thing for the reasons you said. Always trouble me because of the word psyche is soul. It feels like it feels like you're embodying soul, and that becomes a different thing. And then what people mean by that can can vary wildly. Um, experientialism really works for me, except for. I mean, in my book, I ended up putting a little asterisk by the word experience because it was like, you know, but it's not experience. Like, and we, my general thesis would be that everything that, that, hap that we have in our reality has emerged incrementally, incrementally. It's like, you know, it's, there's, a, there's an out emergence is that. It, it takes the past and it makes something new of it. Mm. So, yeah, of course, a life, uh, leaf is an eye. It will become an eye. You know, it's like, I, mm. you know, I really get that. So the, so the word I, but I, and I wanted to try and get, okay, so there's these two elements, you know, which you experience or psyche and matter or whatever word you give to those two things, which are there right from the start. Why? And what I ended up with was, well, every, everything which unifies, which becomes integrated into a thing, however we define that, which has a, 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 an integrated nature, has a then has a relationship with the whole and that it seemed to me that what we were talking about really was this sense in which that everything has a subjective relationship with the objective reality and is reading the information around it according to its own nature mm. so that you and and that what's evolving through the whole of the evolutionary process is this objectivity and subjectivity alongside each other and that and that subjectivity will arise first as magnetic chemical electronic electrochemical relationships of matter that will become sentience 
how I would use sentience for the senses. And then that will become conceptual when it, when with, with the arising of this realm of the imagination or whatever, and then you, the psyche, whatever name you give that. And, and that that's accompanied alongside, oh, well, here's the, the physical, well, not the physical, because it's not just physical, but the objective has evolved mm. and the subjective has evolved. Is that similar to what you're playing with? Yeah, very similar. I mean, um, so the word prehension that I mentioned before, for Whitehead, all subjectivity includes objectivity. So, so um, he's not an idealist because he doesn't think that we simply represent the world in um, as a new kind of as as a, as a thing separate from the world. Although he does think we filter it in our own particular ways. Of course, you know, being a human will see the world differently. But fundamentally, an actual entity prehends its environment, by which he means this that the environment sort of seeps into the subject itself and becomes that subject. So it's not like there's the environment and it feeds data and then we have a new representation of it, but the causal path there is, would be completely unknown to science. Um, so it's not representationalism, it's rather a form of, um, well, prehension, yeah. So, so because, again, it comes back to this question about what a thing is. You know, a thing, like less simple thing like this table, you know, we, we humans can see it with its edges, we can feel it, but of course it is more than that. It has its own gravity, for example. It emits light, you know, reflects light and so on. And it has other properties which we're unaware, no doubt. Um, and, and those uh, emanating properties come into our eyes and become a process within our brains, you know, and we think about it, we perceive it. But it's not like the table and, and the, the mind are fundamentally separate. Um, a part of the table becomes a part of me because the table itself is a process, and that's where the process philosophy comes in. Um, and that's where you have to be really careful, yeah, about things again. You know, things really are concepts, and concepts are an artificial way of sort of splicing up the world according to our needs, and Bergson's really good with this as well. But of course yeah, although, although, you know, but I agree with that, but, but in a way, but, but also you can see that, like, from your previous points, which I really think were, were great, was that there are some things which are... Uh, auto poetic the poetic there there they are able to be integral and then there's things which are piles like you know like i mean i was arguing that my my phone for instance when people could debate it is a is a pile of things which have been brought together as an artifact and that's different to the plant in my room which is functioning as one thing and which therefore it has an integral relationship with the whole well that's interesting i mean yeah so fundamentally then the conclusion of that would be that the real um, natural kinds as we say in philosophy you know um, like real things, as it were, are subjectivities, and that's how you really yeah. differentiate things. Not yeah. object objects in the in the normal sense, or or, or both together, or or or, or so or, or mm. so. What I wanted what I wanted to say to you from the last thing was the, the the another place I ended up was going. Look, maybe maybe we can. I want to say it's not that there's an objective world really, or it's all subjective really. It's mm. that what actually is is the objective information subjectively perceived and that's what is so that and that is a process of course you know it's sort of a reciprocal process yeah yeah and it's an unfolding it's all time unfolding in time the other thing i love about whitehead is everything's i think he's i mean i completely get that everything is in is this this flow of time there is that's ever everything so so that so that if you so that you haven't got it's a, and i think maybe i think maybe that's what you were saying with whitehead or was that if you so it's, it's like what, what's happening when, when, when primitive matter is experiencing the universe, 
Mm. That is the universe. And, it, and again, when I'm experiencing this, it's not like where well, there's this and a representation of this. This is the way things are at this level of emergence yes. for, for me. And, and there's no, yeah, I mean, I'd agree with that. And there's no objective standard like this is what it's really like. And we see it this way. There, there are only um, reciprocal relations of subject and object. Yes, exactly. You know, well, the subject and object are our conceptualizations of what's going on here. Yeah. Yeah, so that's so that it's always both of those, and and it, and it's kind of obvious from if they're both integral to the you know if not if what's happening. So so let me throw this at you, um, <laughs> Peter, and see if this makes any sense to you. So the place I've arrived at to that crazy question, which I asked you at the beginning, and this is my hypothesis. I'm trying to see if I if it can work. I think I've find, you know it's not actually in the book because I've only arrived. I've narrowed it down and down. Is to say what. Could we, could we play with the, what this is, is the realization of potentiality on ever more emergent levels. That's what it is. Because what's happening is that a new potentiality is constantly being realized and within it is everything that's ever happened before. And that's the nature of everything. And that means that there's a tendency towards an evolutionary process because the past is accumulating, there's more and more of it all the time. Yeah. And as it does, greater and greater potentialities can be manifest until we've got from hydrogen to you and me having this conversation. Well, it's quite shocking, really, that you've come to that conclusion without reading Whitehead, because that's, you know, very much in line with his thoughts. So he's, I mean, above, above God, there's a tenet above God even in Whitehead, which is creativity. That's a fundamental point of the universe. Secondly, he's got another tenet called um, objective, immortality, objective immortality, which is the continuation of the past and the present. Wow. So, my God, that's uncanny, isn't it? I mean, that is just uncanny. Because well, really... the thing is, if things are true, then obviously people will be led to it through different routes. You know, and it's not just. Also, I should say, Whitehead, you know, very much sharing things from William James and from um, Leibniz. I mean, Leibniz says the real fundamental entities are monads, which are subjectivities. The actual entity is very similar to Leibniz's monad. It's actually yeah. more than Leibniz and the Spinozists, really. Um, yeah. So interesting. You know, and also part of my part of my hypothesis, I don't know if this would be true of Whitehead, would be that the accumulation of the past, everything is predicated on what's already happened and is, and is both repeating that and refreshing that. And that's true also in soul. So, so in the psyche, in the imagination, no surprise, I think, that, that we discover the same things again. Because, and my sense is that we discover them more easily because others have discovered them already. You know, I, I, I live in hope that the, the, the small amount of work I'm able to do, this conversation, everything, it all contributes to this overall sense that things move forward because people who think these thoughts well into the future will find it a little bit easier because we've already thought them. And yeah, that, you know. I think so, yeah. I mean, I know in your book you mentioned uh, Rupert Sheldrake and the habits of nature rather than yeah. the I mean, I believe he got that from Whitehead as well. So yeah, I think it was right back to um, the American philosopher, actually, um, uh, the pragmatist. Oh, what James again? We never, um, no, no, before that. Um, but you uh, know, David Hume. David Hume mentioned the possibility that the laws of change, nature may change. I didn't know that. I'd forgotten that. I, I, yeah, yeah, I didn't yeah. know Hume, but I didn't. it's um, an assumption, basically, because you, the simple reason is you can't see the future, so you don't know how, what the law is going to be. So you can never be sure that the laws of nature have will remain the same and of course you can't see the far past you can see evidence for it but you can but then you infer yeah you know, like for example we see the background radiation of the universe and we see the expansion of space and we see it's moving out 
and then we press rewind and we think therefore it must have come to a you know, big bang theory but that's just one i mean R roger penrose for example believes in a pulsating universe that yeah. is infinite. um so yeah we infer the past and we also infer the, the future and that's the beauty of hume i mean hume's known as a great critic of religion you know against miracles and so on what people forget about him is that he's a massive crit critic of science the scientific method as well well, the whole of causality, really, wasn't it? <laughs> Just the, the whole thing was up for grabs. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's interesting. A very interesting thing about causality with Hume, because a lot of people think that Hume said causality is constant conjunction. You see two things always con conjoined, and therefore we, make, we think that's what, ca what causality is. Hume, I, I mean, if, like, I was, I was, if you read Hume carefully, what he's really saying is that's how we know, that's how we infer there's a causal nature. Yeah. However, we are ignorant of the, there is a real causal nature of which we are ignorant, you know? So he's, he's, not, so he's not denying that there's a real causality uh, transcending constant conjunction. He's simply, it, he's making an epistemic point, epistemic point rather than an ontological point. A lot of people get him wrong there. And then you've got this ridiculous thing, I think, in modern philosophy about um, counterfactual causation, you know? Like, if this happened, then this happened, or if this didn't happen, then this wouldn't have happened, you know? Subject of conditionals. And there's a complete misunderstanding of, of what Hume meant, really. And then you get, and then you've got all these philosophers writing all these papers and all these journals about it for decades. And you think it's completely pointless. Well, I have to confess to you, Peter, I haven't read Hume, Hume since I was at university, which was the most enormous amount of decades ago. <laughs> well, you know, I only returned to him in my PhD. I'm, I was the same. I just assumed, you know, Hume thought this, but then rereading him, you realize what a genius he really is, you know, and how deep, much deeper than the stereotypes of him, yeah. I find that with a lot of philosophers. I find myself wanting to rush to the de defence sometime of Descartes, who I think comes, but not because I particularly agree with him, but because I feel he, he I do, do feel he comes in for unwanted criticism sometimes, as if he's some sort of cardboard cutout character. And, yeah. the and, and, uh, and that brings me to actually something which I did want to mention with you, which was, was one of the confusions that, that happens for me is between words like psyche, consciousness, um, mind, and all these things. And so what I find myself wanting to do is to root it in something I can just get now in my experience. And which is why the duality that it seems that he's talking about, and I think goes right back to the Neoplatonics and before that, is just simply this obvious duality of, oh, I'm experiencing two different things here. One is a world of sensation and one is not. One is, a, one is something in space, one is not. One is made of matter, one is not. And there's, and that, that net, like when people accuse him of this duality, it always feels like he's just stating the obvious, isn't he? And he's just trying to go, what is that? And that's something which any human being can notice at any moment. It's just yeah. like, that's obvious. And I then think, consciousness gets connected again as a different thing. Yeah. I mean, I think, yeah, he, he points out, Descartes points out the obvious that we define mind and matter in very different ways. And at the very least, you have to accept that. I mean, even, even like a so-called emergentists who, are, who say they're physicalists will accept that, you know, that the properties of mind, for example, you know, like, um, you know, color, for example, is not um, a property that is properly ascribed to matter. You know, it's just color is not really part of the molecule, the atom, it's rather our interpretation of it. So, see, but then the question is, so how do they relate? And this is the great question. Okay, so, so what you've done there, what you did there is exactly the thing I wanted to home in on, which to me, causes me confusion when I think about it, which is 
that there's a fundamental difference, given what we said earlier about the, ob the, the subject in relationship with the objective world yeah. on all these different levels of emergence. Oh, and by the way, you've probably gathered this, is when I'm talking about emergence, I'm not talking about that kind of physicalist yeah. emergence. I'm talking about just the fact that new things have emerged through the evolution. So, so when you do that, it's like there's a difference to me between red, mm. where I'm looking like at my screen now, actually, and there is a color red, and that, that is me in relationship to what is actually there on this level of emergence, it seems to me. It's about my subjective relationship with the yeah. object. And then there's this other thing, which is where I can imagine a red rose or something in my imagination. Mm -hmm. And now that is fundamentally different. And we need to distinguish those two realms. And what I find is that they get thrown in together as if they're all the same thing. And the psyche becomes just like a name for the subjectivity of a human being. Whereas actually, there's a fundamental difference between the subjective experience of sensation and the subjective experience of imagination or, yeah. or, or something. And whatever word you give it, that we need to, we need to get those two domains clear uh, to, to kind of understand what's happening. Yeah, so, I mean, this is a d very deep, obviously. And um, I've actually written an essay, I haven't published it yet, called The Pentalogy of Perception, exactly doing that, trying to distinguish these different meanings um pentalogy meaning five so i mean i think you know, basically what you said sort of we have to distinguish then the sensing uh, as an well in in an act of perception what what can you distinguish there let's say we're looking at a red apple so you distinguish the the actual temporal moment the event the sensing of the apple um distinguish within that the um the ecto physical correlate as i call it which is the um the electromagnetic wave the light wave because some people say red is simply you know a light wave right um but then at the same time you have to distinguish the neural correlate of red um which is not a light wave and therefore we know it can't simply be a light wave because as you say you can imagine it um and then yeah you have to distinguish um imagining or dreaming or you know in any way uh, seeing red with your eyes closed um and at the same time, and I, this is where it gets really controversial, I would distinguish the type red from other types of qualia. And therefore, you can't say red is the light wave, you can't say it's the neurology, you can't say it's the imagination, or you can't say it's the sensing. Rather, it transcends all of those because it correlates to all of those. And thus, red would be then what Whitehead calls an eternal object, which is essentially a platonic form. So there's five aspects hmm. of of a simple <laughs> of a simple seeing of red. Yeah, I'll have to, um, look, I'll have to look at what you've written. My, my my own approach, which is would be, and I'm sure there's you know I know there's lots of problems with it, but is is I want to say something quite simplistic. Really, I just want to go look the 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 red because there is no objective world or, uh, or pure, pure subject, there's always the interaction of the two. Red is what happens when a thing like Tim, with these type of eyes, in this sort of light, looks at that sort of thing, then what arises is this, is, is, is this subjectivity, which is my reading of that information. Um, and I, I, don't, I don't disagree with that, I think that's right. Okay. I, would just, I, would just add, I would just add this more sort of metaphysical uh, aspect to it as well, which is universal realism, that you, you see red several times in your day and your life um and you see the same red several times 
Therefore, the red cannot be equivalent, cannot be identical to any particular moment. You must transcend all of those. So therefore, you get the type, the metaphysical aspect of it as well, which most people are not willing to believe in. But there's, you know, I think it's good reason. I, I guess the, I guess the, the place where I would more, more likely go with that would be. So I do think, I do think this is a new thing for me, which isn't in my previous book. But I think what you mentioned before about the idea of the forms in, in Whitehead's sense of there being, it, I, I, doing work on numbers you, was led me to go, look, you know, I, I've started off my emergent journey. I've, first of all, I've imagined that this is the f beginning of the, the first universe, which I don't actually believe. I think, you know, that my guess is that the universes give birth to universes. I have no evidence for that. That's just my hunch, because that's the way things are. So I suspect that it wasn't like it all started 13.8 billion years ago. It's just that this started. And what came before it was an infinite past that has led to this. And that this is repeating, like everything is, this is repeating what universes do in a creative way. So that's, you know, that's, that would be my, my hunch. Um, but if you imagine it beginning, just for philosophical purposes, then then the, it feels like, well, the first thing there is, which is not a first thing because it's outside time, is that there is, there, there is a, there is a, with, with the whole of coming of, with, with one becoming two, this is Dao De Ching stuff really now, but Chinese philosophy for me, but it, with one becoming two, you've got the 10,000 things. You've got relationship, you've got number, you've got all those things which aren't in time, like Whitehead says, from what mm. you were saying, that, that you've got, and that within that, you've, so you've got these primal, um, uh, relationships between things which we will discover with mathematics and it's not I'm not saying it's mathematics but that's the that's what we discover through mathematics and also within that you've kind of got the essence of what time will be because you've got just in the number you've got the sense of the unfolding of time you've got the archetype for that and with with geometry you've got the archetype of space and that, so that that exists as a kind of foundational level of information through which will come this unfolding of object and subject in or things individuating in things in relationship with the whole, which is going to lead to us. And then when, so that, so that now there's a difference then between well, red for me, red would be, wouldn't be one of those original things because they're very, very simple things, simple in the sense of foundational red would be once there's eyes and then there's the experience of red on this level of emergence that becomes conceptualized and therefore able to be imagined and then you're getting the birth of a new realm so that the, so that the type red is a highly emergent reality right. rather than a primal reality okay. did that make any sense at all yeah no totally and um i you know I, I would just differ and say i think red is timeless um rather than emergent but i do agree it emerges so where did red come from actuality in the way you say okay so what so so what if, what where do these you see is the potentiality that exists before the actualization of it. But isn't so, that true of everything? Yeah, so, well. I, isn't everything then a type? Because everything is a potentiality. This sentence. Well, every, every uh, no, no, I wouldn't say no, not aggregates, for example, but like everything that we, any concept or color, for example, any object of sentience would be a potentiality, yeah. Which essentially is to say that potentiality exists timelessly, Naturality is timeful, as it were, or temporary. But it, it isn't. I don't. I, I'm not sure I'm getting this. So, so if so, given that everything that's coming into actuality presumably was potential, yeah. then my, even my sentence was eternally potential. So, yes. how so do you? Yeah, well, there's. 
the idea of your sentence was a, was a potential, yeah. yeah. Uh, but it was actualized by you just then. But yes. of course, it was a, the question is ultimately, what's the ontological status of, of potentiality? This is the question. Like how does it exist? In what sense does it exist? And so for Whitehead, it exists timelessly. Um, yeah. For others, nominalists, it doesn't. It's just something that doesn't exist, but then is actually, but comes to exist for the first time ever, as it were, in actuality. Um, okay, so I'm with Whitehead completely. I think, you know, that for me, the, the ground, I mean, I used to be, uh, most of my books have followed a kind of a, a, an Eastern philosophical, that's because that's been really my, my focus for, and, and also the Gnostic tradition and these traditions which, which tend to be idealists, which, which we're so fact, consciousness is the foundation, as a, that's, it's fundamentally that, and that's been a major revision for me. Um, and now, the, what I came back to was, it was Brian Swim, actually, I don't know if you know Brian, the, the cosmologist, um, and he, reading his book, The Universe Story, years and years ago, he had this great line where he said, well, what can we say that exists before the Big Bang? He said, well, the potentiality for everything that's come since. Um, yeah, and uh, and I, mean, I, I thought that was so simple and beautiful that that feels like, yeah, that, that's a, I, if I put God there, or even if I put the, 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 you know, the archetypal forms there, it's like, I've, where did, what? But potentiality? I don't know what that is, but it's clearly must be there because this is coming. I mean, yeah, this is, I mean, this, yeah, what, this is a really fascinating thing. I mean, it relates to a lot of other fields like disp dispositionalism and so on, but um, ultimately it goes back to Pythagoras, you know, and, and these, you know, the Pythagorean theorem, for example. I mean, it would be hard, you'd be hard pressed to say that isn't timeless. Yes. It was always there to be discovered. Yes, so I, see, I think that's right. I agree, see, I agree with that. Because it has that kind of it, it, it because by very its very nature, it's it, it's not something which is it, 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 to do with those primal relationships which you have. Exactly. So ultimately, that's then the distinction between actuality and reality. So actuality is a subclass of reality. So reality would include potentiality and actuality. Okay. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, that's but, good. Of course, um, you know, like um, in the medieval period. There was this massive debate debate between the nominalists and the universalists and the universalists sort of in in tandem with whitehead then and ours i guess and then there were the nominalists who 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 said no 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 this is uh you can't you, you, an existence must be temporal so therefore you know pythagorean theorem can't exist timelessly it must only exist when we first uh you know think of it or write it down um and this, this is a massive debate of course you know you know, from Pythagoras onwards, his followers, Plato, of course, the Neoplatonists and then the Scholastics. And even today, I mean, so I was, you know, I was looking into the modern literature on this as well, Armstrong, for example, and so it's just completely undetermined. People just don't agree with it. Gödel, interesting, you know, Gödel's incompleteness theorems. Yeah. I discovered that he was a solid Platonist, as a lot of logicians and mathematicians are, as I mentioned. And he said, if, I, if it wasn't for my... Uh, Platonism, I would not come up with the incompleteness theorems. And not only that, the incompleteness theorems later sort of entrenched my Platonism. Uh, Roger Penrose writes about that, and he uses that against artificial sentience, as it were, so machines becoming conscious. And it's, but it's all related to that. And um, I can't say that I, it's very hard to prove in any way. At the same time, it's hard to prove the opposite. And so I'm still, I'm not, you know, I'm not claiming that I, I'm, I'm completely, um, I held one way or the other, but nonetheless, I, I realized the, 
the real existence of potentiality as timeless is a really serious issue that uh, has a lot of ramifications. But I thought, and the philosophy of mind as well, I think, you know, um, most philosophy of minds don't go into this debate. I think it's fundamental, really. But, um, yeah, highly controversial for the last 3,000 years. So, look, I can't, I can't resist just grabbing a little bit of time just before we if you're okay with that peter because it'd be fantastic i just was, was it feels like we we should just end on talking about psychedelics um, yeah no, um, is it 10 already mate? or 10 to 11 are you okay are you okay to talk for another yeah, no, no, i'm fine now we can continue great so i'd just like to, to to have a to just end up with some psychedelic stuff really and how all this fits in because it just feels like such a great balance to all of that philosophy um mm. and it shares like it sounds like a, a, a shared passion that we both been exploring i'm sure for yeah, many decades um how does that fit into for you how do those two fit together uh right well um okay one you know relating to what we just said then i, I read an essay called uh, the great god pan is not dead a couple of years ago and, and there i i compare this sort of eternal realm with certain psychedelic experiences so for example you know um we perceive the colors we humans perceive, you know, rainbow, black and white, and so on, gray. Um, but could there be more colors? You know, I mean, could there be other colors? Um, can, can we imagine that? No, we can't, you know. But are they potential? Yes, presumably, because other animals might see different colors from us, other creatures. And the interesting thing I noticed that psychedelics do is they, they have revealed to me, you know, occasionally, um, what can only be described as new colors, you know. Um, in other words, so what, what they seem to be able to do is open up your access to that realm of potentiality, um, which is normally denied to us. And that's just one many fascinating things um, psychedelics can do and how it relates then to philosophy of mind and phenomenology and, and you know, metaphysics, really. Um, but how I actually got into psychedelics was through William James, funnily enough. So I was teaching right. religious studies, as I said. And then he talks in the varieties of religious experience about, um, um, you know, alcohol being the first step to the mystical state. And then he talks about ether, nitrous oxide and so on. Yeah, yeah I thought it was fascinating because I was, I was looking at, you know, proofs for God and criticisms for God. And then this was sort of not really proof for God, but rather like um, a knowledge about the metaphysical, let's say. This is when I, in my sort of mid-20s when I was kind of hardcore atheist materialist kind of thing, as we <laughs> all are. And... Um, <laughs> And I thought, okay, look, and then I was walking in a field uh, in Cornwall and, and my brother, who was an amateur mycologist, said, look, I think these are magic mushrooms. And I thought, oh, okay, that's interesting. So I picked quite a few then. I looked it up, took them back to London um, and then, uh, and then took them. And it was like a life-changing experience. For my first mystical experience, I should say. Right. And then I thought, wow, and I looked this up, you know, how, how do you explain all this weird stuff, you know? And it wasn't really, in the philosophical tradition at least, there wasn't much literature at all. Subsequently, I found out there's, there's more stuff, but there's relatively very little. And yeah. so then I thought, okay, I'll make a stab at introducing people to this, the importance of this. And that's when I were at Numenautics, you know. And, um, but uh, still, you know, it's just still a complete mystery, really. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, is, it, is a, it is an extraordinary, extraordinary experience. And, and I mean, I've, I've spent my life kind of exploring mystical experiences. I'd say that's been the center of my life. And um, psychedelics is just one element of that, but it's a very particular one. I mean, when I hear people say, oh, you don't need to take those things because, you know, you can get it naturally. And it feels like, well, you can get loads of things naturally. Jesus, I've had so much, you know, without psychedelics, but actually, yeah. it's quite, you know, it has its own flavor 
very obviously and and yes an easy way to get it as well you know you don't have to spend 10 years meditating well i just remember uh, terence mckenna saying yeah, uh, yeah. you know saying when people said it's unnatural going well what could be more natural than what you did yeah. bending down and picking up a mushroom <laughs> it was like uh, it's a lot more saying, natural than what yeah, i did still looking at walls for hours <laughs> Also, when people say, you know, you know, I can get my fun otherwise, it's, it's a bit like saying, I don't need music, I can get my fun otherwise. Well, yeah, yeah. you can. You know, it's a different, completely different richness of, of life. Nietzsche yeah. said, your dream life, I can't remember which book, but he says, your, one's dream life is part of the tapestry and the richness of one's life. Yeah. It is, because you spend a third of the time sleeping, perhaps less so dreaming, but, but psychedelics likewise, you know, it's part of the richness of your life. And if you don't experience them, you basically have not experienced, it's like not experiencing music all your life. You know, it's like, you don't have to experience it, but you know, it just enriches your life to some extent. And later science shows they're not, you know, at least magic mushrooms are very, not at all dangerous to you. Um, I mean, I have met people who, who have been psychologically scarred by LSD and other things, but they're very rare. Yeah, it is rare that yeah. I have to. But um, it does. Been I think if you've been inculcated into certain religions as well, it's more likely if you actually have got, you know, if you really believe in a sort of Catholic hell, for example, and you take magic mushrooms and experience, you know, dark sublime, it yeah. might, it would probably be at the back of your mind for the rest I, of your I life. Think, I think, but also, I mean, I think generally having a big experience can do that. I mean, mm. without psychedelics, I've had, you know, I had a, a very sobering experience at one of my very first retreats where, or wasn't where we, people were having very powerful experiences, not on, not using any psychedelics, just through these connection meditations, which was so powerful. They still are, and, and nearly everyone's fine with it, and it's great. But there's one guy who just had the most extraordinary experience. Who was going, oh, I feel like I've just seen the Christ within everyone, and and it was a really beautiful. He was just very, very, um, uh, you know, moved. But a week later, he was in real trouble. And I'd never experienced that before. So it was an eye opener mm. for me. It's like, oh God, you know, it never occurred to me. I'm, I could, this could harm somebody because yeah. it was so powerful. And I realized that oh, I need to be, that you need a certain, you know, it's almost like my, my experience with those experiences and maybe with psychedelics too, is that, that people who are very, who have managed to become grounded in the, the self, in the individual, in the body, people, I mean, the thing I always said to my kids was, you know, don't dissolve yourself until you've got one. Yeah. <laughs> You know, build build one up. Know who you are. Become solid. I mean, you you said you're 24 or something. That seems like a really good age. I was younger, but not that well, 18 or something. But it feels like that's a you, know, you want to be. And I've always had a very strong sense of being Tim, and that's resilient. So I had something to come back to. And the only time I've ever had that really question on psychedelics was with um, Salvia Divinorum, and it scared the living daylights out of me. And I said I'd never do that again unless I was with a shaman who knew exactly what it was, because. You know, it was that, yeah, yeah, with Salvia, I mean, you're not even in this world at all. I mean, you just forget, at least in my experience, you just forget who you are, uh, that you could be someone even, you're just in a different world, and that's, that's it's it. Totally, isn't it? Just like, uh, and if you, if you want to go to the world of forms, it feels like you're just in the world of geometry, and, and, and except normally in, in psychedelics, there's that sense of, I'm looking at the world of geometry. With that, it was like, there was no one I, looking. It was just, yeah, I agree that yeah, you know, teenagers shouldn't take the um, very rare cases, but really, it shouldn't. You shouldn't see it as recreation. It shouldn't even. I don't think they should even be called drugs because of the connotations there. Yeah, psychedelic chemicals are very different from cocaine, heroin, and so on. Yeah, very. Um, and um, I, I mean, I even had a student once who was psychologically scarred by me saying, 
you know, evolution, you know, it is, it is true. <laughs> he was brought up, you know, by saying, no, this is just, you know, a lie and whatever, you know, just coming across someone who thinks actually, no, it's probably true, at least in the broad scheme of things, um, really messed them up. You know, I, mean, I didn't, I didn't, I hadn't even contemplated that could happen, but if that can happen to someone and he was what 17, um, you know, imagine what a completely life-changing mystical experience can do. They don't, I mean, it's not always mystical, sometimes somewhat mundane, but generally, you know, take a high enough dose, the right chemical, it's going gonna, it's gonna to change you. Yeah. And, and it gives me, there's a, maybe a good thought to throw at you to end off our you know, conversation here, but, you know, what, one of the things I love, you mentioned William James, and I can remember, you know, I, I, I with both philosophy and mystical experience and psychedelics, but even before just non, non-psychedelic mystical experience, the delight of going through, of going, what's just happened to me? And then going back through the literature and reading these people who were so different to me and, and yet looked so serious. And, and they, were, they were the same. They were like, oh, the, and, and this sense of kindredness with some people throughout time. Like yeah. I said with, with yeah. um, Whitehead or with William James or with, you know, lots of these Plotinus or you know, just these. Yeah, these it's lovely, isn't it? There are, there are others. <laughs> you know, like family, just like, yeah. oh, wow, I'm part of this. You know, it's like. It, yeah, Nietzsche said that about other great writers, I remember, yeah. Actually, for me, it, it really came home when I realized that. You see, I, so I lived, I was brought up in a small village near Penzance, you know, the southwestern town end of the railway here in Britain. And, um, there's one main statue in Penzance on the high street of Humphrey Davy. So Humphrey Davy is known as a chemist who invented the minor safety lamp and discovered barium, some other elements and so on. Anyway, he, I, I mean, uh, you know, I was always under his shadow, almost literally. And, um, <laughs> and, uh, and then, you know, getting into William James and so on, slowly realized that, wait a minute, this, this guy was the first, this Cornish local lad, you know, <laughs> the first real scientific psychonaut. He, he, and I wrote an essay about it recently. It was published in Psychedelic Press Journal. And um, he, um, yeah, he took a vast amount. He, he basically, he wanted to find out in Bristol um, whether nitrous oxide was toxic or not, because it was claimed to be toxic by an American uh, physician. And he discovered it wasn't. In fact, it was quite pleasant. And, um, and, and, and he took, you know, high amounts every day in 1799. And it culminated in him going to this sort of TARDIS box um, and pumping in, you know, vast amounts of the gas for an hour. And then he had these, um, he had these uh, visions. And he became an idealist almost. Um, and, you know, and so that was him, yeah, this great chemist. Or he called himself a chemical philosopher because, as you know, back in those days, there wasn't a distinction between scientist and philosopher. You know, what we'd call scientists were natural philosopher. And the good thing about that, I think, is that they always had to, um, all, all, the, all their discoveries had to be, they thought, I suppose there was some back in mind that you have to connect this then with the broader philosophy, you know, which includes um, idealism becoming big at the time, fanaticism and so on. And, um, and he did, you know, and he, you know, I mean, in his book of 1800, writing about the experiences and tests, he, he mentions in passing twice that nitrous oxide sort of healed his uh, pain in, in his tooth, right? Um, but that wasn't of any interest to him, really. It was, this is side effect but the phenomenology and how it related to idealism was very important for him and then 40 years later um, Edgar Allan Poe's cousin George Poe suddenly realized wait a minute maybe I can make money out of this and and then the nitrous oxide became a you know um, a thing for dentists and then for pregnant <laughs> is that right is that the oh, amazing. And, and that, that's, a, that's the medicinal use of it today but wow. you know like like I said for, for David it's the real pr- discoverer of its benefits it wasn't particularly important 
There's a so whole he was a scientific psychonaut, you know. I mean, he's very interesting. Yeah. He wrote a poem called Spinozist, and um, he's very much into the idealism of his time with his friends Wordsworth and Coleridge and so on. Fascinating part of history in Britain, and you know, it took seventy years before academic philosophy got interested in idealism. You know, Bradley and Green and so on, McTaggart. So um, yeah, so you know, these people are out there. <laughs> And they're perhaps at your doorstep, but we don't know. Well, it feels that's that's fantastic. Uh, so it feels like, well, it sounds to me like we're both part of continuing something, which is a beautiful thing to be part of. So really nice. I'm really pleased we've connected, Peter. I'm surprised. I thought we were going to have arguments about things, but um, we seem to be <laughs> bored, you know? <laughs>